1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's ask him now to not only bless the reading of it, but our understanding and application of it. Our gracious Father, without the pure milk of your word, your word which is life-giving water to us, which is bread and meat meant to nourish us and grow us. Father, without it, we, we would be sickly, I we would die. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have given us yet again another morning where we as your church can gather together around your word and be fed herein. Father, use it, we pray this morning, to not only convict us of sin and humble us low, but, Lord, to point us to Christ our Savior in whom we are being built up. Give us now, we pray, the mind of Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing in Paul's kind of extended argument through chapters 1, 2, and 3 that we are a people called out of the world, as foolish as it might seem, based upon the preaching of the gospel. Uh, a message which the world sees as foolish, but which he's now beginning to show us is a message which by God's wisdom and grace is building us up, even if ever so slowly, into the image of Christ. Not only individually, but corporately, as a church, as a local church. But Paul begins here in this section with what is really a warning to the pastors and teachers within the Corinthian church. But he ends with a warning to the whole church. His main argument here in this section is this. If there is envy, if there is strife, if there's any division and quarreling and cliquishness within the church, you better get a hold on that and do so by getting a hold of what God's church really is. Uh, the fighting that seems to have erupted within the Corinthian context, Paul is saying and reminding them, that's because you've lost track of not only what the church is, but what the gospel is that undergirds that church. He says, pastors, you need to be reminded of what your role is. And then church, you need to be reminded of who you are. 
And once you get that, once you get what the church is, then you'll take more seriously this kind of prevailing problem within their community of strife and quarreling and contention. The whole section turns on this idea of a building. You see the metaphor. Last week we saw Paul use the metaphor of a field with some pastors planting, other pastors watering, and the people within the church being the actual crop growing up within that field. And as he says back up in verse 9, you, church, are God's field. But now Paul changes images and he sees and he describes the church as a building, specifically God's temple. He says there in verse 16, you are God's temple. And so the whole section turns on this image of a building, a temple. To be sure, it really is a fantastic metaphor to use. For one reason, building a temple, building an actual cathedral, a, a, a structure that could house the entire people of God, usually, for most of history, took a lifetime and more than one generation to accomplish. In other words, it took a, a lot of time and a lifetime's worth of energy one generation would give their resources and work to build a foundation. Another generation or two might give all they had to build upon that foundation. And then a third or fourth generation would finish the building and finally use it. And in terms of metaphors, seeing the church as a building, as a temple, this is so good to get and to realize. There's a long-term perspective. Here that just, I think many of us in our modern American instant gratification culture, we, we just don't get. We want insta-church. We want the pop it in the microwave, and if I do these three things, simple trick, we get a church church. But wonderfully, this passage even, I think, well, it kind of breaks apart in terms of how a temple is built. There's the section on the foundation, there's the section on building up the structure, and then there's the section where we stand back and we see the whole thing completed. So that's what we'll see this morning. Paul's main argument is seen here in three major movements. First, in verses 10 and 11, we see Paul describe the importance of the proper foundation. What is the right foundation for the church? Secondly, he'll talk about the proper materials for building off of that foundation. How and with what do you build off of the foundation and start building the actual structure? And then thirdly, he'll have a stand back and take a look at what the whole building actually is. So, he starts in the beginning by reminding the Corinthian Christians that when I came to Corinth, he says I was like a skilled construction worker. The, the word he uses there for a master builder, as you probably have it in the English, English Standard Version, the, uh, the, the word for master builder is the word where we get our English word architect from. It, Paul's describing himself as a wise architect, a wise builder. And he says, the first thing I did by God's grace was to lay a solid foundation. You see that? According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled Master builder, I, I laid a foundation. Now Paul has already been at pains throughout this letter to the Corinthians to remind the Corinthians of what that foundation is. If you remember back in chapter 2 and in verse 2, he said that when he came 
first to Corinth, he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That, 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 that was the core of his preaching, Sunday in and Sunday out. Indeed, that's what he says again here in verse 11. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So think about that. Think about that just, just for a second. The only solid foundation for any given local church is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which means it can't be anything else. The solid foundation for any given church can't be we want to start a church to help the society and the neighborhood around us. That's a good cause, but that's not a solid foundation. You can't start a church by saying we want to be a people that are given over to counseling and making sure that uh, we're dealing with all the mental health issues in our neighborhood. Again, a good cause, but not a solid foundation. Paul is clear here. The only thing that can start and give solidity to any given local church is the right preaching of the right gospel of Jesus Christ alone. If a community is not established on the basis of the gospel of Christ, then whatever that community is, even if it has the word church on the building, it's not a church. The only true basis for a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which again, means making sure we know and continue to know and commit ourselves to never forgetting generation after generation what that gospel is. Before you become a member of Greenbelt Baptist Church, we have our becoming a member class. It's a kind of half day class where you sit down and and, and we talk about all the things about what membership is, about ecclesiology, about what a church is. But by and by and large, the, the, the emphasis and the most that we give our attention to is what is the gospel? What do we believe? We want you to be clear about what we believe as a church, and we want to be reminded about what we believe as a church. And we want to be on the same page to know that you're buying into what we buy into. Now, if you've got that right foundation... I think Paul is saying here, then you'll have, at least within any given church that has that foundation, many different pastors and, and elders. That's part of the good foundation. Multiple elders and these teachers, these elders who are baked into the foundation, they're there because Jesus, he's given them to the church in order to teach the church. A pastor's teaching is his building, a verb, his building up. And so it's from there where we move now into the second stage of Paul's argument, which is building the right structure out of the right foundation. And here, here Paul kind of directs his argument toward the current pastors and elders within the Corinthian church. But this is also, this is really also for the whole church to be aware of, precisely because it's, it's the church who calls to herself who those pastors and who those elders are going to be. You want the right men to be teaching you the right stuff. And so therefore, church, pay attention. You don't want to call to yourself a wolf in sheep's clothing. So in a sense, Paul, yes, he's saying, pastors, I'm talking to you. But church, you really need to pay attention to this. And so he says, look, 
We need to be wise. Make sure the elders you've established to start building up the structure of this church, that their work, that their ministry, that their teaching is in line with the foundation that I laid. Is their ministry one which is the continued preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the same gospel that you heard from me when the church was planted? Is their teaching a right application of that gospel? So Paul says here, look, each elder needs to watch out how he builds. He, he needs to watch out concerning what he is teaching. But church, you need to be concerned with that too. One member that we brought in not too long ago, right before the church voted them in as a member, uh, met with me in, in, in my church office and said to me, Pastor, I want you to know that, that, that when, when I and my family become a member here, uh, we're going to do everything that we can to support the church and the building up of Greenbelt Baptist Church. And that includes the minute that you start teaching wrong things to do everything in my power to make sure you're not the pastor. To which I responded and I said, that's the most beautiful thing anyone's ever said to me. And, and, and that's absolutely right. Because it's not about me, as Paul argued last week, who am I but just a servant and any other elder here and any other pastor. The point is to point to Christ. And insofar as any teaching comes out that misdirects or misses Christ, then the church ought to say, no, step down. Move on, bud. We have other faithful men who could step up and preach the gospel. Paul says, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Verses 12 and 13. Notice. Paul is wanting the elders and the pastors within the Corinthian church to make sure they're using the proper materials. In other words, are the materials you're using to build up the church appropriate to the foundation that was laid? Is your ministry and is your teaching in line with and matching the boundaries and the perimeter and measurements of the foundation that was laid? Does it match the gospel? Is it biblical? And think about that. This, this actually kind of goes back to what Paul said earlier in his metaphor of, of milk and meat. You know, you, I gave you milk, but you should now be maturing into chewing on meat. The gospel, when we first hear the simple truths that we are saved from the wrath of God by what the Son of God has done for us in his death for us on the cross, that he hung on the cross taking on to himself our sin, our deserved judgment, and undergoing our death for us. So that if we believe in him, right? Because he didn't stay dead, but was resurrected to everlasting life for us as well. If we believe in him and trust in him on account of what he has done for us, then we're fully forgiven. And as our sin was commuted to his person as he hung upon the cross, so too his righteousness is credited to us as he was resurrected from the grave so that for every person, sinners as we all are, for every one of us who has repented of their sin and put their trust in Christ, we will stand now as righteous before God on the last day. That's the gospel, pure and simple. 
And look, it never changes. That, that's always the gospel, pure and simple. In any given point in history, and in, in any given culture, we, we, we don't have to change the gospel to, to, to fit different people groups or, or different historical cultures. It's one gospel message which we always proclaim, but, but Paul's point is that it's deeper than that as well, isn't it? There are more nuances to understand and meditate on. There are applications and points of doctrine that as we grow in our standing of the Bible, we come to realize are actually essential to that simple gospel. That Jesus Christ could only be our Savior as, as who is fully God and yet is also fully man, both at the same time, two natures, divine and human, and one person. That's a deep mystery, and yet it's essential to the gospel. That Jesus had to have been born of a virgin. That the resurrection was a real historical event. That when he got up from the grave, there are eschatological implications that we now live in a now and not yet time. That the miracles Jesus performed had cosmic significance in overcoming the forces of darkness plaguing this world, and therefore his miracles had to be real, historical. These aren't just stories. That God, as God, cannot be God unless he, our true living God, is also three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That God is unchangeable in his perfections. That God is sovereign and in control over every minor detail of all history and every event and every microbe and virus. Nothing moves without his saying so. And that God in his simple nature is both fully loving and also full of wrath and justice. That God is wise and merciful and good and that we cannot make sense of who God is and his justice and his mercy without seeing the atoning work of Jesus Christ where the grace of God and the justice of God meet. Friends, there are nuances of doctrine about humanity, about who we are, who and what we were made to be, and that if we get those things wrong, we get the gospel wrong. There is a theology of the Holy Spirit and, and the inspiration, the inspirited nature of God's word, the Bible, and if we get that wrong, we get the gospel wrong. And there is no end and no bottom to this glorious body of theological exploration contained for us in God's word. A word which, from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, all points toward and is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so you see, even though we start with the milk, the simple truths of the gospel, we mature and we dig deeper and we start chewing on tougher meat. It's the same gospel, but it's for grown folk. And my job, my duty, our, our, our ministry as elders is to make sure you're grown folk. It's the stuff that turns you into a man of God. It's the stuff that turns you into a woman of God. We're not toddlers and we're not asking for mommy's milk anymore. We've got the mind of Christ, says Paul. And so we start, we start dealing with the, the deep truths of God's word. And that's what Paul is saying here. There was a foundation. You got the gospel in its simple beauty, but now you've got to build upon that foundation. And God has the church, he's given the church pastors and teachers to help the church grow up. Their ministry, it doesn't stray from the gospel. No, it builds upon that foundation. Their teaching, their doctrine 
should always be in line with and according to the parameters and measurements of the gospel. But it doesn't remain foundation work. It has to be building up work. You've got to be taught the finer points of doctrine, the deeper truths of gospel theology. And this isn't like extra gospel stuff, you know, like things only a few eggheads who went to seminary get into. Like, man, he's a theology nerd. He should be an elder. No, not at all. This is what the church is built up with. Paul's big question here is not whether the structure being built looks impressive now, but whether the structure will last. Will it last the test of time? Especially, will it last the test of God's final judgment? This is the original three little pig story, isn't it? One built with hay and straw. He was able to build his house quickly. It probably looked impressive as he sat out there with his lemonade and said, ah, look at that. But what happened? When persecution came in the form of a wolf and blew on the house, the whole thing toppled over. The next big built his house with sticks, but again, the same persecution came and and down came the structure. The last pig, though, the wise one, he took his time. And no doubt the effort was grueling, right? It's hard work to make bricks. It takes a long time to lay bricks. And yet over time, he built and he built and he built and he built I wonder, was the pig ever envious of the other houses around saying, wow, lots of people are going there. It's up. They seem to be having a good time. He just kept on building and building and building. And what happened when the wolf came to him and blew on his house? Nothing. It withstood the wolf. He was able to weather the storm. He was strong enough to stand the test of trials. Paul's saying the same thing here. It's it's inappropriate to build with materials not in line with the strong foundation of the gospel of Christ. In fact, any kind of ministry, any kind of pastoring that's not in line with the solid foundation of what we see the apostles preach in the New Testament, it only leads to tragedy. It's a tragedy to build only to have that building crumble and fall apart. People die in collapsing buildings. Souls are lost when you build a church with hay and straw. Even though Paul speaks here of a final last day test, a coming judgment from God, I don't think it's wrong to see here other smaller tests of fire which the church must go through beforehand. But Paul's main emphasis is what? It's to the minister's. It's to the elders. You pastors need to watch out because your teaching will be tested. There is a last day judgment where everything you taught, every word of instruction, every bit of counsel that you gave or lack thereof, maybe you didn't teach when you should have. Maybe you didn't serve when you should have. All of that will be tested by God. Will your teaching in the last day, be seen as a solid word ministry? Or will it be shoddy? Shoddy work. 
Only solid gospel teaching will last and remain and make it through the final test. The shoddy stuff, all of it, will burn away. An embarrassing day for any minister of God. And notice this. If a pastor's ministry is good ministry, a gospel-grounded and a Christ-centered ministry, then his work will not burn up and, says Paul, the minister will receive a reward. What does that mean? Right? Like, is there some heavenly treasure chest full of gold and rubies? A crown, perhaps? A pat on the back? I'll take a pat on the back from Jesus. But what is this, what is this reward? More than likely, the reward will be the very sheep the minister has poured his life and energy into. What is a pastor's reward? It's you. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Church, pray for your pastors that in their treasuring Christ, they would treasure you more and more and have you as their everlasting treasure. Fellow elders of Greenbelt Baptist Church, give your lives for these sheep. Think about eternity and seeing each and every one of these sheep in eternity saying, thank you, or why didn't you teach me that? May our efforts be seen as worthy and by God's grace last into eternity. And to be sure, my salvation, the salvation of the elders does not depend on my ministry. Praise God for that, right? Christ alone is my righteousness and he alone is my salvation. Uh, I, I don't get into heaven by my works. I get into heaven simply by faith alone in Christ alone, just like any other Christian. That work has already been accomplished. And that's what Paul says in verses 13 through 15. He's not talking about pastors losing their salvation. No, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. FYI, this has nothing to do with the myth of purgatory. There is no purgatory according to the New Testament. Some Catholic apologists will try and say that this is talking about purgatory. It's not. This is the last day. And after this, all ministers as well are brought into heaven. He's talking here about a kind of ministry that's going on, the kind of teaching that's happening. And if it's poor ministry and if it's subpar teaching, it'll be seen as such on the last day. So again, fellow elders of GBC, I implore you, I'm praying for you, and I know you're praying for me, and I want to encourage you, let's work in such a way that on the last day we will see much of our ministry efforts last. Now in verses 16 and 17, Paul turns his attention away from the pastors of the church, and now he gives an extended warning to the entire church. Do you see that? You, you all. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple? He's talking here about the local church. Or the word temple here is the word that means the inner sanctuary where God dwells. You are God's sanctuary. 
God dwells in the midst of you. And when you, plural, gather together there, God is present. Which is why we begin our time asking God to study our hearts for what's happening right here and right now. Which is why we plead that on Saturday evenings, we spend our times preparing our hearts for the incredible weighty moment of gathering together where the spirit of Christ and Christ himself is with us. And incidentally, this is a fantastic verse, as John Calvin points out, a verse which highlights the divinity of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you see that or not. In the Old Testament, only God dwelled within the temple. And here we see the Spirit of God dwelling within the new temple, which is the Church of Christ. So we see a wonderful, robust defense of the Holy Spirit as God. But the point Paul is making here is that the gathering together of Christians to come together and worship as we're doing right now, there's something sacred that's happening. The sanctuary is, is not the room inside there within the building. Right? I, do, do you sometimes feel tempted to say, I can't wait till we get back into church? <laughs> You're in church. This is it. Wherever and whenever we gather, that's where God is in a special and in a sacred way. And so you see, I hope, why this matters when Paul is addressing in the wider problem their disunity and their quarreling and their cliquishness. By splitting and dividing the church, you are splitting up and dividing God's temple, God's very dwelling place. And insofar as we are a part of the effort to break apart and to just destroy God's temple, God will engage himself to destroy that person. He said here, a, a minister who is a subpar minister, if his teaching is just a little bit off, his ministry will burn up, but he himself will be saved. But listen to the warning here. If you're a part of splitting the church, of destroying the temple, the language is strong. God will destroy you. God's temple and as his building, each member should be cemented together with brotherly love. And look, I, I think this is what Paul is getting at here in this whole paragraph, this cementing together and this building up together. It really only comes about through gospel preaching and right teaching, where each brother and sister, where each member is built up in godliness according to the word and secured on the foundation of the gospel. Yesterday morning, during our Saturday morning sermon prep group, which uh, you're, you're more than welcome to attend, Daniel Gomez brought out this excellent image, thinking about our very own uh, church building. I don't know if you know this or not, but on the other side of the building, there's some pretty serious damage. Maybe you've seen that due to a, a truck backing up into the overhang there. It's, it's pretty bad. And when you get inside, you actually see that, that the, the bricks are beginning to separate from the foundation. There is some division going on in the actual structure. And left unchecked, it will break away and do serious damage to the whole church. Gomez's analogy, I think, was very apt. He says, look, insofar as church cliques start following people who are bent on dividing the church and making it about themselves, they're doing great damage to the whole structure. And insofar as they do that, we can't even meet in the building. The, the church is falling apart, and we fail to be light and witness to the world. The church finds its unity in Jesus Christ 
He's our sole foundation. It's his gospel in all of its variegated depth which builds us up and it is his spirit which fills us with his presence and continues to bind us together as his people, enabling us to worship him with one voice and one spirit and one heart. Before we come to a close here and and, and turn our attention towards the Lord's Supper, and, and, and we did this last week, and I think it applies again this week. Just because you come to church doesn't mean you're a part of that church. The analogy fits here because each person who believes in Jesus Christ, as Peter told us, which was read for us earlier by Will, each person who believes in Christ becomes a stone in the body and in the building up of the temple of Christ. What makes us a part of the church is repenting of our sin and putting our faith in Christ so that we become one with Christ and we become a part of the body of Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and and perhaps you think, oh, by going on a hot, humid day, early Sunday morning to go to church, God is cool with me. I, I want to encourage you, no. We, we cannot stand on that last day before God, and when God says, why should I let you in? You say, well, because I went to church. To which God will say, then why did I send my son to die for you and to give his life for you? The only answer we can give is because of Christ and Christ alone, and insofar as we do that, then God graciously brings us within the church. All of this doesn't make us righteous. We do this because we're grateful for what God has done for us in Christ. And we display that gratitude and we display that unity together by partaking in the Lord's Supper. We are commanded by Christ to worship God and be the church in participation of the Lord's Supper. And we have the elements set up in the back. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a part of a local gospel-believing church, uh, the same gospel that you've heard here this morning, you're more than welcome to partake in the Lord's Supper with us. But if you've not yet repented and, and you have not believed in Christ, I encourage you to hold off and wait. Wait and think about the gospel and believe in Christ before taking the elements to yourself. What I want to do at this time is encourage within each individual unit, clusters here of people, uh, one representative, uh, maybe a head of the family, or, or, or if you're individually sitting, to get up and form a line and go ahead and, um, and receive the packets of the, um, the drink and the bread for your little group. Um, yeah, so a socially distanced line. Um, so Daniel, you'd get one for yourself and, and Lenny. Um, um, uh, Sarah, could, could I encourage you to uh, get four for this whole front row right here? Uh, and then just on back, uh, each individual. Uh, Keith will lead us in a time of uh, quiet meditation. And then once everyone is seated, we will continue and participate together in the Lord's Supper.